This podcast contains language and subject matter some may find offensive. Keep out of reach of children and the elderly. This is Canadian Spirit. Hello and welcome to Canadian Spirit, the podcast hosted by two paranormal investigators who use what we've learned in the field to solve our nation's most famous and forgotten paranormal mysteries. I'm your host, Kelly McMillan, and with me, as always, is the intuitive, the inquisitive, the incomparable Darcy Baruda. Hello, hello, hello. So how have things been going for you, Darcy? Oh, Kelly, you know, it's been a crazy week. Oh, really? I know we've been trying to sit down and do this for a while. It just hasn't seemed to be working out for us, has it? Yeah, no, with any luck, though, we should be able to get this episode out on time. Yeah, well, I put the thing on Do Not Disturb so that we can do this episode. I've been dying to do this episode, so let's rock and roll. Yeah, for sure. This one's going to be a good one. But first, we're going to start off with our new Twitter follower shoutouts. Special thanks to Colin Wysong. The Honorable Tony Clement, he's a former member of the House of Commons here in Canada. So that was kind of a cool thing to see. Oh, yes. And we have uh, John McLaren, the 30-something podcast, True Crime Townies, Trail of Nerds, ATSW, The Escape Pod, Renegade Pop Culture, Love List, Bad Acts Podcast, Undone Podcast, Patricia Wells, Strike Accord Live Podcast, It Happened One Year, Chaz of the Dead, Dragon, no last name, Addie the Gothic Girl, Mystery of the Week, and Karina Neri. Special thanks to all of our Twitter followers, as per usual. Yes, thank you so much. Yeah, And we also have some new five-star reviews this week. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Great. All right. A A very special thanks goes out to Gaz and Dangerous Dave from the Insanely Dangerous Retro Pod Show for their five-star review of us on Apple Podcasts. They wrote, there are plenty of UK and US paranormal shows out there. However, not that many Canadian shows. Kelly and Darcy have put that right with Canadian Spirit, where they talk about anything from ghosts to UFOs. It's up there with the best paranormal pods out there. That, that, that's huge praise coming from these guys. and uh, Oh, absolutely. That means an awful lot to hear feedback like that. We do certainly appreciate that. Yeah, definitely. And it's it a lot. Yeah, if you feel nostalgic for anything from the 80s or 90s and you just want just plain silliness, uh, then these two are definitely up your alley. Uh, to sell this completely, two words, toothpaste karaoke. Uh-huh. So yeah, go check it out and tell me that shit isn't entertaining. <laughs> is that what they're saying about us no no that's what i'm saying about them oh, okay oh, it kind of lost me there okay cool carry on the next one comes from miss von frias i hope i pronounced that right on apple podcast she says these guys have a fascinating podcast you can tell that they are good friends and are interested and knowledgeable on the subject matter great listen oh well thank you for that yeah and finally we have a recent edition from uh, craig baird of Canadian History X. He said, always a fan of the paranormal. I enjoy this podcast and the chemistry between the hosts. Campfire stories are great and the paranormal discussions are always entertaining. This train is fucking killing me. Is it still blowing its horn? Yes. How many times do they need to blow their horn? I don't know, but this is getting ridiculous. Sometimes you think it's deliberate. (sighs) Just annoy the hell out of us. No shit. If you guys want to know more about Canadian history and learn from one of the best experts out there, then Canadian History X is the show that you want to listen to. Craig lays things out in an incredible painstaking detail and even has Canadian celebrities on every once in a while for an interview. Yeah, so this is awesome, guys. Thank you so much. And uh, I would also like to say a big thank you to Bob. I don't know Bob's last name. But he gave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcast as well. And he runs the Bob's Mess podcast, which is a brand new podcast where the titular Bob interviews people on every conceivable subject. His first guest was a phone sex operator. So, yeah, you filthy, horny animals probably want to go and listen to that. Can you repeat that? A what? A phone sex operator. A phone sex operator. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, he's... Definitely getting some interesting guests on there. That's for sure. 
Yes. Well, thank you, Bob. I really, really, of course, as always, we really appreciate all the reviews. And uh, thanks to you all for, for the wonderful reviews. It means it really does mean a lot. So that's great. Yeah, no, I'm really appreciative of all the reviews. Everything seems to be picking up. So, Yes, that's super. But yeah, no, I'm really excited for this episode because it has everything that you could ever dream of when it comes to another worldly encounter. It has UFOs, it has space aliens, it has a doomsday device, it has everything. Oh, this is going to be a, a great one. Oh yeah, it's it's one of the most bizarre stories in regards to the paranormal that I've ever come across in all my years of doing this. So, needless to say, this is going to be a fun ride today. Well, let's dig right in there. Come on, let's let's get this show on the road. I'm I'm psyched, man. Can you tell I'm excited? Oh yes. But, yeah, all right, let's give her for our listeners. We are looking into the Garson, the Garson invaders of 1954 today. So with that, let's dive into. Kelly's campfire tail. Fucking train. <laughs> Still? But how long is that son of a bitch? Oh my god. I don't think I'm gonna be able to edit all of this out. Uh, now I can hear it back there. Mm-hmm. Why is it necessary to honk your horn that many freaking times? Oh, I don't know. China can hear that thing. No shit. Okay. Are we done now? So, with that, let's dive into Kelly's Campfire Tale, where I put you, the listener, in the middle of a paranormal event during my mediocre storytelling ability. We're going to have a lot for the blooper reel in this episode, I think. Perfect. Hey, the bloopers, they're always good. Yeah. And I Death. just add a couple beers, so let's... Okay, carry on. <laughs> yeah. So if I sound slurry, let me know. Uh, no worries. The depths of the mines don't make for the best of working conditions. Your pay is good. You make your rounds, checking equipment and inspecting the safety of this already perilous occupation. Everything from reflective vest violations to a blown belt on a winch motor. It's a pretty standard day down in the nickel mine, all in all. As you prepare to wrap up and head back to camp, you see a bright light deep down in the shaft. One that you haven't noticed before. Fearing a fire is in the mine. You reach for your radio, only to find the battery is dead. Cursing, you set off down into the mine, donning a respirator and making your way down a steep slope, descending deep into the depths of the earth. The light ahead grows brighter, and as you approach, you know instinctively that it isn't a fire. But what it is, exactly, escapes you. The color is unlike anything that you've ever seen before. In fact, if you had to name this hue of light, you draw a complete blank as to what it was called. It's simply a color that you don't have a name for. Emerging from the shaft, you, f- you find yourself in a huge cavern, ceilings jagged with stalactites some 40 feet above you, water dripping audibly from their tips. Then, you freeze in your track as your eyes are drawn to a huge golden sphere sitting in the middle of the cavern, pulsating with that inexplicable radiance. It's transfixing. And as you step closer to it, part of your brain screams at you to run. But another demands that you investigate. Frozen with indecision, you stare at the object before you. Suddenly, you're struck hard in the chest and sent flying into the rocky cavern wall, your visor of your respirator shattering with the force of the impact. You collect yourself quickly and stumble to your feet, intent on facing the threat. But as your eyes rise to meet whatever struck you, you quickly realize... You're no match for these things. What stands before you can only be described as insects straight out of an H.P. Lovecraft story. Titanic in size as they stretch more than halfway to the ceiling of the cavern. Their color, shape, and great cyclopean eyes are enough to send your mind reeling. But it isn't until your mind erupts in voices that are not your own that you truly begin spiraling into the depths of utter and complete madness. They tell you things. Horrible things. Things that you could never possibly repeat to another human being. Dark truths and even darker secrets before requesting. No, demanding a task that you must perform. You shake your head, refusing. A look of what may be pity or resigned apathy crosses the being's faces before they descend on you. 
The clicking of their insect-like wings and snapping of the crab-like claws echo off the cave walls before they are drowned out by your own terrified screams. Excuse me. Jesus, did I kill you? No, I just got swallowed. Sorry about that, Kelly. I swallowed something. <laughs> Pardon me. No worries. <laughs> okay, so what did you think of the, the campfire tale there, Darcy? I thought it was really great. All right, on. Yeah, very good. You know, as uh, always, your campfire tales are always good. I, I can't really, to be perfectly honest, I can't think of anything wrong with any of your campfire tales, Kelly. It's very well spoken. A lot of people seem to enjoy them. So I think very we'll professional, keep... very well spoken. Hell of a lot better than I could ever do, that's for sure. But it was really good. Eh, I think that we will keep those around then. I think that we should. All right. And with that, we will move on to... Canadian Spirit Chronology. Today's adventure takes us to Ontario in the sleepy little town of Garçon. Today, it has a humble population of roughly 7,500 and can be found along Highway 86 northwest of Sudbury. Garçon, or the area that's surrounding it, was originally a trapping route used by the Hudson's Bay Company as a trapping route for fur trade until the early 1880s, when the Emory Lumber Company began operations in the area. The company built a roadhouse and horse stables in an area that became known as Headquarter Lake mostly because Garçon wasn't anywhere near any rivers or waterways that could ship the lumber from one place to another. The logs had to be taken via horse-drawn sleighs to rail yard and then by train to sawmills in the lower mainland for processing. And, fun fact, where that railway once stood is now the site of the Greater Sudbury Airport. It was a remote posting that makes one flashback to the old stories of the Chasse Galerie, which I'm sure we'll cover at some point in another episode. But anyway... The first roads in Garçon were the result of logging trails that were built to transport the timber to the waiting rail cars and still have the names that corresponded to the type of timber or the destination for each trail. Examples include Birch Street, Goodwill Drive, Garçon Lake Road, and Sunderland Road. In the late 1800s, while the Canadian Pacific Railway was being built, a number of blast charges revealed patches of strange colored rock which a blacksmith later identified as, you guessed it, nickel. The metal remains a main staple of the region to this day. The ore is an invaluable mineral that is in almost everything that we use, from batteries to kitchen knives to medical equipment. Nickel is the cornerstone of the world of industry, and Garçon just happens to be one of the biggest nickel deposits in North America, if not the world. How the nickel got there is quite a story in and of itself, and it takes us to outer space. You sound Wait. like Muppets from outer space. That's exactly what you sounded like. That's where I was going with that. Okay, fantastic. That's exactly what I was aiming for. So it takes us to outer space for a short time anyway. Imagine, if you will, the Earth floating around in the deep void of space 1.8 billion years ago, minding its own business. The landmass known as Pangaea is just starting to form. And the only life that exists is primal bacteria swimming around in the vast oceans of the planet. This infant Earth happened to wander into the worst part of the galactic neighborhood at the worst possible time. A comet, 10 to 15 kilometers across and traveling at over 35,000 miles per hour, decided that the Earth made for a pretty appealing target, and its aim was true that day. The comet struck the area that is now Sudbury, Ontario, and struck the Earth with such force of 100 million megatons of TNT. To put that into perspective, the Tsar Bomba, the largest thermonuclear device that has ever been detonated, was about 58 megatons of TNT. That's a lot. Yeah. So Sudbury was the site of a prehistoric apocalypse, or more or less, but that comet was made mostly of metallic components, and most of that was nickel. It's actually kind of interesting because you can see the remnants of the massive crater today that has become the Sudbury Basin. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah, no, it's when you look at it on a map, you really get an idea for the scale. It is crazy. It's a crazy big crater. Yeah, and that's supposed to be like miles wide, and miles deep. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I heard about that crater. It's actually quite quite uh, fascinating stuff behind that, eh? Mm-hmm. Or quite an interesting story behind that. Yeah, definitely. 
Actually, Canadiana, the uh, YouTube channel, has a great yeah. has a great thing on that. It's uh, under Sudbury and the Mysteries of the Universe. Oh, cool! I'll have to check that out. Yeah, maybe I'll post it onto uh, our Twitter and our Facebook pages. Oh, great! Yeah, yeah so uh, the nickel mine, or the har- or you know, the harvesting of the long dead corpse of a comet, whichever way you want to look at that, began in Garçon. Uh, sorry, in Garçon was founded in 1907 after the land was purchased by the Mon Nickel Company, who immediately started developing the land by digging a vertical shaft. <laughs> I said shaft. That was six by 14 feet and sunk to a depth of 225 feet and opened at the 100 and 200 foot levels. At this time, Mond had a workforce of about 100 people working the mine, but over the next seven years, that workforce and the depth of the mine would both quadruple in their respective values. After World War I, started in 1918, that is. The workforce would top out at 300, but even then, they would be mining over 111,843 tons of ore per year. That's a lot of ore. Oh, yeah. And it only gets bigger. After the war, things got back on track, and in 1929, Mon Nickel Company merged with the International Nickel, Nickel Company to make a giant conglomerate that was producing over a quarter million tons of ore per year and a workforce of nearly 400 miners. Wow. Yeah. Again, though, not all good things can last. From 1933 to 1935, the mine was closed during the Depression years. It would remain closed until December of 1936 with a workforce of 60 people. After this, though, the mine seemed to experience growth and as of 2017, mined 68 kilotons of ore and employs nearly 1,000 people. But this story doesn't take place in 2017. It takes place on July 2nd, 1954. The story first went public by a radio host and minister for ABC Radio in Buffalo, New York, named Elder Charles Beck, which it, that, that sounds like a fucking cult leader's name if I've ever heard one. Yeah, it's kind of different for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Charles and a local reporter from the Sudbury Daily Star, who you could say was a product of when a man loves a woman, a reporter who really or who would really go the distance. Wow. A man who played the... hmm? No, carry on, carry on. A man who played the fool's game because that's what love is all about. Can you take a guess on what this guy's name is, Darcy? This guy here? Oh, God. I couldn't hazard a guess. Why don't you fill us in, Kelly? Oh, I gave you all the clues, too. Those are all songs. You know what? It's one of those things where it's at the tip of my tongue. It does absolutely 100% sound familiar. It's just that my thinking cap isn't functioning for some reason. <laughs> yeah, I gave you all the clues. Those are all songs by the by the singer Michael Bolton, who this guy shares um, a name with. Michael Bolton, of course. <laughs> so, I, I, I'm i sorry. I just had to make that joke before we moved on here. No, that was a good one. Yeah, because if I didn't, I'd be disappointing our listeners and myself. Oh, no, you're a comedian. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> So, Elder Beck and Michael Bolton conducted extensive taped interviews with one 23-year-old Ennio Lasarza, who is the witness to this bizarre event, less than a week after it transpired. Lasarza was an Italian immigrant to Canada who was described by his fellow employees at the Garçon nickel mine as straight-laced and no-nonsense. Well, when Ennio Lasarza had gone to work on that June day, I don't imagine he could have possibly prepared himself for what he saw or the frenzied circus that would follow him around for months, if not years after the event. Investigators from all over would descend on the area, including investigators from Project Blue Book, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, the Royal Canadian and United States Air Forces, and the Air Ministry of London, and for good reason. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Let's get into the sighting itself and work from there. At approximately 5 p.m. on June 2, 1954, Ennio Lasarza was going about his usual workday as a miner and painter in the nickel mine of Garçon, when he noticed a rather peculiar object in a clear blue summer sky. Quoting from Project Blue Book now, quote, 
he noted with surprise an object hurtling down from the sky at several times the speed of a jet plane. He thought that it would crash, but it slowed down and ended by hovering just above the ground, end quote. So this UFO is said in Blue Book to be a huge disk, but other sources have it as a giant orb-shaped object, so there's a bit of a discrepancy there. In any case, it isn't a typical maneuver of any kind of military aircraft, even by today's standards, to dive out of the sky and then slowly hover to the ground, let alone the standards of 1954. The craft then landed in front of La Sarza, and this is when shit really starts to get weird. Buckle up, kids, because you're, gonna wa- you're not going to believe this shit. Quoting again from the Project Blue Book files, quote, The saucer, any overlaid, was somewhat spherical in shape. So, in this case, it's known as a sphere. About 25 feet in diameter, it had a set of portholes or an equivalent around it. There were rudiments of a landing gear and something like an antenna on top, end quote. Uh, Darcy, have you ever noticed how uh, UFO cases seem to reflect the technology of the time? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Yeah, because, I mean, like, when you look at modern UFO sightings, like, say, for example, the... uh, the USS Nimitz encounter with the Tic Tac, it's a very sleek and futuristic looking craft. But when we go back to 1954, we see something that has like antenna and shit like that. Wow. I always found that a little bit fascinating. It, it seems like, I, I mean, as far as aliens go, I'm sure that their technology would evolve too, but it just seems like it's, uh, it's interesting. We'll say that. All right. But back to the case now. Uh, Lasarza, who was probably scared shitless at this point, was frozen to the spot where he stood, facing a spherical saucer thing, I guess. But with a great hiss. hmm? With a great hiss. Yeah, with a great hiss and hydraulic whirs sounded, the door to the craft opened. What do you think was inside the UFO, Darcy? Take a guess. What do I think was inside the UFO? Uh... I don't know, jelly and slime and lime, stuff like that seems to be popping into my mind as soon as you said what you think is an UFO. Hmm, not, not, not a bad guess, but uh, let me tell you what actually came out of this thing. We'll quote from Project Blue Book again. Quote, three strange beings emerged from the craft. They were about 13 feet tall, greenish blue in color, and the face was a color combination that he had never seen before. Their bodies seemed to glow, and they had a single eye in the center of their of their forehead. The beings had six evenly distributed sets of arms and legs. The hands wow. were equipped with crab-like claws, which opened and closed spasmodically. They were also equipped with a natural twin antenna on the head, end quote. Interesting, interesting stuff. So, basically, giant space bugs. Space bugs, or... Bugs here on Earth bother me. What more are space bugs? Yeah, especially like the size of these things, too. Mm. Yeah. You just don't know what you're dealing with going up to a place like that. Yeah, I don't know if I actually included the size in my notes, but some of the... Uh, yeah, it's thir- 13 feet tall is how tall these things were. Wow. That's pretty freaking massive. Yeah. yeah. No, I won't argue with you there. That That's pretty amazing. The one weird thing about uh, the antenna on the head that was right before the end of the quote there is that Lasarza would actually describe these antenna as ears and said that they were shaped like the spurs on a cowboy's boots. So just another really fucking weird detail. Overall, these extraterrestrial beings had an overall insectoid type shape like we discussed. And it's the type of appearance that would give Johnny Rico of the United Citizen Federation a fucking hard-on! Extra points to anybody who actually got that reference. Uh, The only good bug is a dead bug. Anyway, where were we? Right. What was that? Did you hear that? Yeah. So now I'm getting strange noises. I thought that was you just, like, exhaling exasperatedly at my nonsense. I thought it was you. No, I'm I'm just sitting here. The only thing that's running in my place right now, Callie, to be honest with you, is the fan. Hmm. Maybe this. Maybe the feds are listening to us. I think we got something going on here, man. This one might be a first, uh, first episode, ladies and gentlemen. 
Maybe. Weird. Hmm. All right. So anyway, uh, these creatures observed Lasarza and the quote-unquote leader of the group approached the terrified miner, who was, if he wasn't scared shitless before, he definitely was now. I know I would be. Yeah. Lazarza stepped back, but reported being struck with a psychic blow. Quoting from Blue Book again, quote, One of the beings started to come toward Ennio, who turned and ran. However, the being sent some sort of hypnotic stare after Ennio and froze him in his tracks, and then spoke to him in a voice that seemed to address him inside his own head, end quote. Now, we've seen this in many type of alien abduction cases throughout history, arguably, and most famous, the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case, made this a main staple of extraterrestrial encounters of the third kind. However, Betty and Barney Hill's abduction was seven away, was seven years away from happening at this point, given that it happened in 1961. Many other extraterrestrial encounters have the same trait, but as far as I can tell, this may be the first of its kind in UFO literature, and it's mostly lost to history at this point. Wow. Yeah, it was actually kind of just uh, out of uh, sheer chance that I came across this. Uh, Cryptopia actually has a great article on it. That would definitely be one to read over. Yeah, it's where I got actually a lot of the quotes from Blue Book, aside from the declassified files I was able to dig up myself. Cool. No, this is definitely a great episode, man. This is one, I have to say, this is one of my personal favorite episodes so far. Oh, yeah, we're not even done yet. Oh, oh, let's let's get right into it here. So what happened next to Ennio? He was there, frozen in a field, in the middle of the day, surrounded by gigantic extraterrestrial insects and their otherworldly craft, probably experiencing the maximum threshold of terror that a human being could possibly endure. But this encounter is nowhere near done, and Lasarza's encounter is not yet over. Continuing our reading from Project Blue Book, quote, the being sternly requested or ordered Ennio to perform some task, the nature of which has stoutly been re- he has stoutly refused to divulge, even to officialdom. He was emphatic that he would rather die than do what he, they asked him to do, end quote. So what did the space bugs want Ennio to do? Why was it so horribly awful? Was this favor of some strange sexual nature? Did they ask him for tree fitty? Or did they just want an Italian-born miner to help destroy the world? We'll explore all that right after this. This is Wine, Dine, and Storytime. I'm Nydia. I'm Dana. I'm Cindy. And we're your hosts. Have you ruined a family gathering by asking what wine pairs well with eating a husband? Are you the CEO of TMI? Have you ever been kicked under the table because you brought up your favorite dinner topic, atrocities throughout history? Then this podcast is perfect for you. Each week, Dana and I share stories based on topics that include true crime, historical shenanigans, unexplained mysteries, and all things fascinating, while our amateur chef Cindy prepares themed dinners and pairs wines based on those topics. Find us, the Wine, Dine, and Storytime podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts, and give us a follow. And we're back. Now, where we left off was Ennio Lasarza. He was being propositioned by extraterrestrial space bugs to perform some unspeakable task. That's a sentence I'll file away under. I thought I'd never say that out loud. Uh, it was at this point that Lasarza supposedly lost consciousness, overwhelmed by the terror of the current situation. When, when Ennio came to, the craft and the giant insects were gone. Being a conscientious worker, he immediately reported this incident to his immediate supervisor. But then he took it further than any conscientious worker and also reported his strange encounter to the RCMP, the Royal Canadian Air Force, who uh, both keep these records under lock and key to this day. However, the RCF, yeah. however, the RCAF forwarded some of the research notes to the United States UFO investigation body where we've gotten most of the information for this episode. That I am, of course, talking about Project Blue Book. So, investigators spoke with Lasarza, who at this point was exhibiting severe paranoia, according to experts, or according to reports. Lasarza was so terrified by what, what he'd witnessed, and was so paranoid of receiving retribution from the extraterrestrials for refusing to comply with their demands, 
that he requested that the RCMP place him in jail as a safety measure. Ah. That doesn't sound like the type of behavior that you would expect from someone who, say, just had a hallucination or something like that. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a little odd. It kind of adds a little bit of credibility to it because the behavior doesn't quite line up with with what you would expect from, say, somebody with a psychological disorder. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's all uh, pretty bizarre stuff for sure. Mm-hmm. So this is the part of the story where the media gets word of NEO's story. Many news reports from the region, some of which I managed to find, said some actually said some pretty shitty things about our protagonist in this story, including some casual racism toward the Italian people. Uh, Which, of course, that comes up, right? It's the 1950s. It's Canada. Yes, Canada did have a racism problem and still does to an effect to to a certain extent. Exactly. But anyway, the media basically painted Ennio out to be a lunatic. And aside from all the joking that we've done in this episode, we here at Spirit do try to take all our claims, all the claims of our clients seriously. Absolutely. And in any case, Ennio took this all in stride, noting to investigators that he knew people would see him as a rambling nut job but also refused to rescind his story in any way, insisting that he was telling the truth. Uh, So it was on July 9th that we come back full circle to Elder Charles Beck and Michael Bolton, the two reporters who made this case public. They were granted an exclusive interview with Lasarza and brought along a tape recorder to capture the audio of Lasarza's harrowing account. But after the interview was over, a paranoid Lasarza was so concerned after about how his about how this confession might make him or might get him in trouble with authorities that he demanded that the two reporters destroy that audio tape they acquiesced and thus the only recording of Lasarza's encounter in his own words was destroyed now a lot of people will say that that's oh that isn't that just convenient but you know i mean would you really want to risk getting arrested over this? Absolutely not. Yeah, so I can kind of see where Lasarza made that decision, right? Yeah, that would make sense, yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. But Bolton and Beck, however, were not about to let this story go. They returned to their offices in Buffalo and recorded everything that they could remember while the case was still fresh in their memories. And thus, we do have this story today. Now, I said we were going to get into what the aliens asked Lasarza to do, and in our own roundabout way, we've gotten there. While no official record exists, there is speculation that could lead to the level of paranoia and terror that, terror that Lasarza displayed following his encounter, and would explain his reluctance to both comply and to carry out the task set before him by the cosmic cockroaches. The evidence lies in what else but the periodic table of elements and Nichols' place in it. That's right, folks. You came here for the paranormal and you're leaving with an apocalyptic chemistry lesson. How about that? Nichols. Very good one, I might add. Oh, yes. This is is both going to inform and probably terrify. So Nichols is right next to Cobalt on the periodic table and on an atomic scale are actually very similar. So what does this have to do with anything at all? Darcy, can you take a guess? Ah, God, I couldn't right off the top of my head, uh, but um, yeah. Yeah. More more investigations, (laughs) it would be my best guess. (laughs) All right, let me tell you. Most forms of cobalt are benign and useful in the fabrication of, like, airplane parts, jewelry, or even in dyes, as dyes for stained glass and ceramics. Except cobalt-60. Ah. Cobalt-60 is a form of cobalt that is highly radioactive. In fact, a single gram of cobalt-60 has more radioactivity than all of the radium that has ever been manufactured on the face of the Earth since the beginning of time. 
And this is all true. Yes. You can verify this stuff all for yourself. In its stable form, cobalt-60 is used in radiotherapy cancer treatments. However, in an unstable form, namely after it's first forged, it's extremely dangerous. This element gives off gamma radiation, which, if you don't know, that's the bad radiation. That's the radiation you do not want. No! Even short exposures to it can lead to skin burns, cancer, or if you're exposed long enough, you get cooked from the inside out like a hot dog in a microwave. I know I wouldn't want that. I don't know about you. No! So, here's where we bring things back full circle again. Cobalt-60 can theoretically be created from nickel. Nickel. The same metal that Ennio Lasarza just happened to be mining. Okay. So the process would require chain reacting the nickel by bombarding it with neutrons to start converting the nickel in the Sudbury mine into cobalt-60. This would be bad. Very bad. And... Quite possibly with the giant or, and quite possibly what the giant space bugs asked Enio to do. If theoretically they had some kind of neuron emitting device, they could have converted all of the nickel in that mine into extremely radioactive material, effectively turning the mine of a effectively turning the nickel mine into a multi-million ton dirty bomb. Wow. Again, a little bit of perspective is needed here. A singular bomb using only three-tenths of a gram of cobalt-60 could cause an area the size of Manhattan to become completely uninhabitable for thousands of years. And we are talking about kilotons of this stuff in the earth underneath Garson. It's hard to believe something like that could be so powerful. You know, it like, is. It, it's just hard to fathom how how powerful that stuff is. Yeah, and really when you think about it with that much cobalt 60, that would literally eradicate life from the face of the earth. Oh, no doubt. And being a miner and by all accounts very knowledgeable in metallurgy, Ennio would know this. And he would know what would happen if the alien, if he did what the aliens told him to, if they say, uh, told him to take a device down into the mine that would convert all of that nickel into cobalt 60. Wow. That's just amazing. Not only that, but he was, he would also have the knowledge of the cobalt bomb, which is a weapon that had only been theorized two years before on a world stage as a weapon that could be an even greater threat than a thermonuclear device at the time, which would also go to the point, it would explain the terror that he felt at their command and his reluctance to talk about it at all. Because if he'd complied with the request, like I said, he would have wiped light, all life off of the face of the earth. Oh, no doubt. So really, if any Lasarza genuinely experienced what he said he did, he was quite possibly the first man in history that literally saved the entire world from an alien threat. So kudos to him. Definitely. But we'll explore that and a little bit more right after this. Hey, Leanne. Hey, Alana. Why should the people listen to Booze and Ghouls? Well, I don't know, maybe because they want to be entertained and informed at the same time. And also, would you say that it's funny? Hilarious. He's also not a fan of men and will try to scare them off. <laughs> well, listen, I've scared off a man or doing my day, too. <laughs> He's still trying to run his ghost brothel. I love it. Check out Booze and Ghouls. A paranormal, true crime, and conspiracy podcast. New episodes every Friday. And we're back. So, what could it be? What's your ideas, Darcy? On which one, Callie? On the Garcon Invaders. 
Well, I, don't, I would like to pick up a book and read it more, but I think it's pretty bizarre stuff, to be honest with you. That's my idea. I mean, like, what do you think that it could be, though? Well, you know, it's it's kind of a tough situation because, you know, like Martians from outer space, or could it be something more explainable? It's actually kind of funny that you mentioned that because I didn't include it in my notes. Um, there were a couple of those media outlets that were saying that Ennio Lasarza said that these aliens were from Mars, but he later came out and said that that was not the case at all. So he thinks that there were something more of this planet then. Is that what he's saying? No, what he says is that he he thinks that they're extraterrestrial, but he doesn't know where they came from. Okay, so that that's kind of like remains a mystery of where they came from. Yeah. yeah See, it's... and that was, it could be a million ways it came from. I mean, who's to know for sure without solid proof, right? Yeah, and not only that, but I mean, when you look at the vast expanse of the entire universe, you know, it, it's a complete crapshoot as to where they could have possibly come from. Yeah. It could have been from a million places. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't necessarily have to be within our own uh, solar system, but I guess we really didn't know that exoplanets even existed until back in 2012. Yeah, but who knows what's beyond? See, what I've always taken an interest in, Kelly, just to throw that out there, but I'll be really brief on this. Mm -hmm. I've always wondered what's beyond the planets. Like, how far has our solar system actually been? How deep in space has our our solar system actually been investigated? Like, how far out there have we actually gone? As far as I know, like, we do have two crafts that actually just recently left the solar system. That's Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. So that's beyond space? Yeah, that's beyond, like, our solar system itself. They're actually the, the first and only human-made craft that has ever gone to interstellar space. See, so that it would be. I've always taken a um, fascination as to what's actually beyond that. Yeah, we really don't know at this point. Like, is be... there more planets? Is there? Yeah, no. There's definitely more planets. They've been able to spot them with, uh, I, well, with both spacebound and earthbound telescopes. But they're unknown planets. Yeah, they know that they exist. They just don't know what's on them. Because there, there was one, and I, I saw it on an astronomy show one time, and pardon me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm getting out of the paranormal uh, aspect of our show, what we're supposed to be talking about, but there was one actually out there that I remember seeing on a planet show one time that's just pure water. It's all ocean, the entire planet. That's very possible. And I'm wondering if that's not one of the ones that are beyond our solar system, that have yet, one of these planets that have yet to be discovered. Yeah, they could also be talking, I think it's Enceladus. It's one of Jupiter's moons. They oh, figure yeah. that aside from the outer shell of it, which is obviously ice, they figure that everything beneath that is a geothermal ocean. Oh, yeah, something like that. But anyway, it would be interesting to find out one day if we could actually go beyond what we know about space, like go further into space and explore some of these other planets. Because I'm just wondering if that's not where some of our aliens are coming from. Way, way out there. It is possible. Like, for example, uh, one of the exoplanets that they found, it's Gliese 581G. It's yeah. a planet roughly Earth's size, and it's within the Goldilocks zone of its star. Oh, so, really? So it would, it's, a, it's right in the best possible spot for it to be inhabitable for life, say, if, uh, you know, if there is liquid water on the surface and things like that. Similar uh, biological entities what we see here on Earth could have very well evolved there. Okay. And yes, but, and this is the unknown. Then. It's one of these unknown planets is what you're talking about, right? Yeah. Like, it's one of the exoplanets that they've found. It's just, it's currently 56 light years away, and it's impossible to get a probe there, so. Yeah, because it's just so far away. See, this, this is the kind of stuff that I find interesting, and that's what I often wonder if that's not where our aliens are coming from, the unknown the further yeah. into space that we have yet to discover. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like we were talking about uh, Betty and Barney Hill earlier. They said that uh, those particular aliens, they came from the Pleiadian um, constellation there. You know, that little uh, cluster of stars just uh, to the top and right of Orion? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's where they said those aliens came from. Oh, wow. Well, see, and this is why. Why would there be life on other planets? out there where we probably don't know, not necessarily on Jupiter, on Venus, but 
out there that we don't know nothing about yet, the unexplained, the unknown. Why would there be life on there? Why would we be the only life on Earth? Well, you know, really, there's there's actually an equation for that. Oh, yeah? It's called the Drake equation. It's when you take, uh, like, all the amount of planets and all of the possible, um, say, essentially, like, great filters, which is a whole other philosophical discussion that we're not going to get into here. But every possible planet and every possible scenario, when you apply the Drake equation just to our galaxy alone... There should right. be twenty. There should be twenty thousand intelligent civilizations out there. Oh, I believe it. The only thing is that then you run into something called the Fermi paradox, and that is if if the galaxy is so full of of uh, extraterrestrial life, where is everybody? Exactly. So That's yeah, a really, really interesting, great question. You know. Yeah, it's it's a really great thought experiment to think about, like. When, when you break it down, as far as the entire universe, not just our galaxy is concerned, but when you look at the entirety of the universe, extraterrestrial life is a certainty. The only uncertain thing is, are they visiting us? Right. And I know I'm going to get some flack for that for some, from some of our listeners because of all of the new things that have been released by the Pentagon and whatnot about UFOs. But... I still remain unconvinced. We don't know exactly what these things are, and until we until we capture one of them and pull an alien out of it, we cannot definitively say that they're alien spacecraft. Exactly, until we know for sure. Yeah, that's why they're called UFOs. That's unidentified flying objects. If it's an alien spacecraft, it's an identified flying object. Exactly. It's a very important distinction to make. Yes, no doubt. As for what NEO experienced that day, I really don't have a lot of good ideas. The only thing that really comes to mind is a possible hallucination due to heavy metal poisoning because he did work in a nickel mine and with a lot of trace elements that were down there, it's very possible that he could have gotten exposed to so like heavy metal ore getting into his bloodstream and whatnot. But Here's the thing with heavy metal poisoning is that hallucinations are not a typical symptom of that. Right. So aside from, say, a sudden nervous breakdown or a sudden psychotic break, which does happen to perfectly normal, perfectly healthy human beings, I don't have a good explanation for what happened. Yeah, just kind of one of those things that remains a mystery, eh? Yeah, the fact that he was so adamant that he would not tell anybody what they asked of him, but he was okay saying, like, yeah, I was visited by giant space bugs. It's definitely strange. Like, uh, I, yeah, like I said, I don't have a good explanation for it. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of interesting stuff, for sure. Mm -hmm. That might just have to remain a mystery until we can hopefully get the proper... Yeah, because, I mean, it's possible that Ennio is still alive today because he was only 23 in 1952, which would put him in his late 80s, early 90s at this point. But it's highly likely that he's probably passed on. Right. And as well as everyone else involved. So I don't think we're ever going to get any kind of closure as to what exactly happened. No. Yeah, yeah exactly. With that... I think we should move on to similar cases from around the world. Our one case that even is remotely close to the events that we just covered is a little-known tragedy that took place in Buenos Aires in 1997. Although this remains a contentious event in history, we feel the need to or we feel the need to include it here. The official narrative is that a meteor that was derailed by a group of insectoid extraterrestrials was forced to crash into the capital city of Argentina, resulting in the deaths of 8.4 to 12 million people. Wow. Including the mother of one Johnny motherfucking Rico who took the fight to Klandathu and kicked some arachnid ass! I'm kidding, of course. That's the plot to the film Starship Troopers. I thought that sounded familiar. <laughs> I thought I'd throw a little misdirect your way. Uh, no, I, I, I knew it clued in right away as soon as you started 
with that. Yeah. Yeah. I was, but yeah, my point is, is that this event is a singular one in history. And honestly, there's not another one like it. I can't find anything that even starts to compare. But, you know, this segment tends to be the, uh, the, uh, the neglected one. So I thought I'd throw something in there at the very least. Yeah, it worked well. You did a good job. <laughs> Big round of applause for you. But... Even if it was just a shitty misdirect that people will be mad at me for. Oh, well, what do you do? Wait. Yeah. All right. And with that, I think we'll move on to... Ladies and gentlemen, the question of the week. Darcy. Yes, sir. This question comes from our very own super producer, Squishy. In your opinion, what would aliens look like? Well, Kelly, um, my thing thought of an alien is not your typical uh, big eyes, big black eyes, uh, kind of balloon-shaped head. My idea of an alien would kind of be like a gremlin type of with big ears, cat-like eyes, short little guy, of course. But I also believe there could be some 12-footers out there, too. Yeah, That's my know, idea of an alien. That first description, you know what immediately jumped into my mind? What's that? You almost perfectly described the Kelly Hopkinsville goblins. Really? Almost, yeah. See, and I never knew anything about that, so that was quite the coincidence. Yeah. No, that that's almost a perfect description of them. Awesome. <clears throat> hey, I'm as, quite proud of that. As for myself, I would like to think it would depend on the creature itself. And I guess I really can't answer this because there are so many factors at play that I'm unfortunately very well read on. And so I guess it would all depend on the environment that it came from. Exactly. Well said. But I think that just about does it for the Garcon invaders. I I just want to make a quick note here. I know throughout the episode I've been saying, I've been pronouncing it Garcon and Garson. I don't know what the proper pronunciation was. So, so I think that we learned this week that all bugs are intent on destroying the human race, whether they come from the stars or from your petunias. Thanks for listening, everybody. And until next time, you can get in touch with us at here at Canadian Spirit by reaching out to us on Facebook at facebook.com slash spiritgp, on our Twitter account at spirit underscore Canadian, our email, spiritinstitutegp at gmail.com. And finally, you can leave us a voice message that we will share on a future episode at anchor.fm slash Canadian Spirit slash message. We want to hear your stories. And finally, if you are not a giant space bug, and maybe even if you are, Leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any of your podcast platforms of choice to allow us to reach some new listeners who are missing out on this madhouse of our own creation. Tune in next time for our analysis on a super fun cryptid, the Yukon Beaver Eater. Prepare yourself for some double entendres, folks. So until then, I've been Kelly. And I've been Darcy. And this has been Canadian Spirit. Good night, everybody. Have a good night, guys. That's all for this episode. Special thanks to Torin for our music. Zach Black, that's me, for voice work. All of our sources we used for this episode. And you, our listeners. For more information on the Supernatural Paranormal Investigations and Research Institute, visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Spirit GP. We'll see you in two weeks.